to the book of Acts and to, ver- uh, to chapter 17. I'm going to read uh, just some verses from Acts chapter 17, and then we will turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 thinking about Paul in Thessalonica, and we want to read uh, the record that Luke gives us of the foundation of the church there in Thessalonica, as it's recorded in Acts 17, uh, beginning to read at verse 1. It's page 1115, if you're using the church Bible. Acts 17, verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. The people And the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. We end our reading there at the close of verse 10. Then we turn forwards to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we're going to read just uh, a few verses from verse 17 to the end of the chapter. It's page 1188 in the Church Bible. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning at verse 17. Paul writes, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy 
or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming. Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Well, for our communion season, uh, beginning this evening and running through to next Lord's Day evening, I want us to look together at 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 17, through to the end of chapter 3. 1 Thessalonians divides into two halves. Chapters 1 to 3 are the story of Paul's past relationship and dealings with the Thessalonian church. We have its foundation in chapter 1. And then we have the character, the nature of Paul's ministry there in chapter 2. And then in chapter 3, what has happened since the missionaries left. That's the first half. And then the second half of the letter is exhortation about the Christian life and the importance of the Lord's second coming. 1 Thessalonians is a letter that throbs throughout with Paul's love for these new converts. Uh, We we pick it up again and again. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 2, for example, right at the very beginning. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Or chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. Chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. We were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Verse 11, For you know how, like a father with his children, We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So Paul's love for these believers comes out again and again, but especially in the passage that we're going to be working through uh, for this communion season, and especially, especially in the verses that are before us this evening. I want us to notice four things about the apostles' love for these Thessalonian Christians. First of all, we see Paul's love questioned. Paul's love questioned. We don't so much see it in these verses, uh, but this is the background uh, to these verses, as we'll see in a moment. Paul's love questioned. Paul and Silas only stayed for a short time in Thessalonica. We've just read in Acts 17 that Paul preached in the synagogue there for three Sabbaths. So perhaps his stay was as little as two or three weeks. And as we've just read, that stay was cut short because of the jealousy of the Jews. They were envious of the success that Paul and Silas were having in gaining converts. They went to the city officials. They brought this serious trumped-up charge 
in Acts 17, verse 7. These men are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Now that was potentially an extremely serious charge to bring in a place like Thessalonica because there was a special political relationship between Rome, the capital of the empire, and Thessalonica. And any hint of rebellion would have been dealt with very, very severely. Thankfully, the magistrates appear not to have believed the charges. Uh, They would have taken much more stringent action than just putting Jason on bail if they had taken them seriously. But nevertheless, the church thinks that it's best to smuggle Paul and Silas out of the city by night. And in the time that he's been away from the city, his Jewish opponents have been going around the churches in Thessalonica and in the surrounding district trying to discredit Paul to his converts. And it seems that they were making two basic accusations. The first thing that they were saying was that Paul's motives were insincere. His motives were insincere. It seems that they had been portraying Paul as a money-grabbing charlatan who was trying to cash in on the people's naivety and gullibility. And that was a very plausible charge at this time in the Greco-Roman world because Cities like Thessalonica were plagued by traveling teachers who preyed on gullible, vulnerable people. They went around from town to town looking for fame, looking for money, and looking for women. Thessalonica was on one of the chief roads of the empire, the main artery road that ran from east to west across the Roman Empire. Thessalonica is right in the middle of that. And so they probably had more than their fair share of this type of person. And you can imagine the kind of thing that these uh, people were saying about Paul. These preachers, this Paul and Silas, you know, they put on a great big show of holiness, but they're only in it for what they can get out of you. They're just after your money and your praise. They love the sound of their own voice. They love to see you hanging on their every word, treating them like gods. That's the kind of thing that they were saying about Paul. His motives are insincere. The other thing that they seem to have been saying was that Paul didn't care about his converts. Not only were his motives insincere in the beginning, He didn't care about his converts. At the first sign of trouble, what happens? They hot-footed out of town like cowards. They leave you behind high and dry to clean up their mess. Likely as not, you'll never see them again. These are fly-by-night rogues. They're only interested in saving their own skin. Their motives are insincere, and they don't care about you. their converts. Now, no one likes being slandered, but this kind of slander could do real damage to new converts. And so Paul spends chapters 2 and 3 of this letter 
exploding these accusations. In chapter 2, verses 1 to 16, he answers the first charge that the missionaries' motives were insincere. And then in our passage, chapter 2, verse 17 to chapter 3, verse 13, he deals with the second accusation that Paul didn't care about his converts. And how does Paul do this? How does he answer this charge? He pours out his heart on paper. That's what we see him doing here in these verses. He's not answering the charges point by point. It's as if he's trying to to drown out, to overwhelm these questions and these doubts that had been sown in the minds of the Thessalonians with a great flood of love from his heart. He's told them about his love in chapter 2, verses 1 to 16, but now he shows it in chapter 2, verse 17 to chapter 3, verse 13. Paul's love questioned. Then secondly, in verses 17 and 18, Paul's love defended. Paul's love defended must have been so hurtful for Paul to be accused of not loving these new Christians. How wrong could they be? No one could have loved these Christians better than Paul. And yet the question did need to be answered, didn't it? Why hadn't Paul returned to Thessalonica? The Thessalonians knew the circumstances of his departure, but these opponents seemed to have been successful in planting seeds of doubt in their minds. Perhaps Paul was glad to get away. After all, there was lots of trouble here. Maybe he was relieved to to, to get shot of us, to, to have a bit of peace and quiet. Yes, he was, he was very busy and very involved in us and in our lives while he was here, but once he left, perhaps his focus shifted to other people, to other matters. That's, that does happen, doesn't it? Out of sight, out of mind. Is that what has happened to Paul? Paul says three things in response to that. First of all, in verse 17, he says, leaving was agony. Leaving was agony. You see how he describes his departure from Thessalonica in verse 17? He says, we were torn away. We were torn away. That's a very strong word in the original language. It's used of children being orphaned. It's used of parents who are bereaved of their children. Their children are torn away from them. In chapter 2, in verse 7, then again in verse 11, Paul compares himself to both a mother and a father. And he's saying here, I felt the anguish of having to leave you Thessalonians as keenly as a parent being separated, being snatched away, being ripped away from their children. It was excruciating 
It was traumatic. It's not at all a case of out of sight, out of mind. And Paul assures them that just because he's not with them in person doesn't mean that he's not thinking about them. And all that he says goes on to underscore that. Leaving was agony. The second thing that he tells them in verses 17 and 18 is that he tried to return. He tried to return. Paul has not been sitting around in Athens just moping and wishing that perhaps one day he might be able to make it back again to Thessalonica. No, he made strenuous efforts to return. Again, the language that he uses is very emphatic. Literally, he says, I strained very hard with great desire. And so his failure to make it back to Thessalonica so far is not for any want of trying on Paul's part. He has tried again and again and again. He didn't just give it one shot and then gave up. He has tried repeatedly. And then the third thing that he says in verse 18 is that he was prevented from returning. He was prevented from returning. Someone has been actively working against Paul to frustrate his attempts to get back to Thessalonica. He says there are supernatural forces at work to stop him from returning. Satan himself is blocking his efforts. It's not Paul's fault. Paul doesn't elaborate precisely on how Satan has hindered him. Maybe it's that thorn in the flesh. Whatever precisely Paul's thorn in the flesh was, he describes that thorn in the flesh as a messenger of Satan to torment him and to harass him. So perhaps it's his thorn in the flesh that has hindered him from getting back to Thessalonica. Perhaps there has been some kind of conspiracy, some kind of plot. But again, Paul is making the point, it's not my fault it's not my doing. It's not any choice on my part that has prevented me from coming back to you. I, it was an agony of grief to leave in the first place. I have tried to return repeatedly, and the only reason that I haven't come back is because of satanic opposition. So don't listen to those slanderers who are trying to tell you that I don't love you that I don't care about you. I absolutely do. Paul's love questioned. Paul's love defended. And then in verses 19 and 20, Paul's love explained. Paul's love explained. Why is Paul so eager to see these Thessalonians? What is so special about them? Why all the fuss? Well, he explains the answer to those questions in verses 19 and 20. And just look at how he piles up his words here to describe these new Christians. They are his hope, his joy, his crown of boasting, and his glory. Let's look at those words in turn. They are his hope. Paul is looking forward keenly anticipating, 
presenting these Thessalonians to the Lord on the last day when Christ returns as the fruit of his labor. I wonder what you're looking forward to about heaven. Maybe all kinds of wonderful things that rightly we should be looking forward to. Maybe you're looking forward to that new resurrection body that we were reading about in 1 Corinthians 15, imperishable and powerful and full of glory and directed and controlled by the Holy Spirit. I'm sure we're looking forward to being reunited with loved ones who have fallen asleep in Christ and whom we miss. But Paul says that one of the things that is his great hope that keeps him going, that he looks forward to more than anything, one of the things that he most eagerly anticipates about heaven is being able to look at the Thessalonians and say, these people are here because God used my efforts to bring them here. My heaven is two heavens because they are here. They are his hope. And then twice uh, he says they are his joy. They are his joy. Paul is still thinking here of the day of judgment and the joy that will fill his heart as he sees these Christians from Thessalonica entering into eternal life. Men and women who just a few weeks ago were worshiping idols, as he says in chapter 1 verse 9. Just a few weeks ago they were in temples to Zeus and Poseidon, bowing down to those false gods and giving them sacrifices. And now look at them. They've been transformed. You are my joy, he says. I rejoice. It, it fills my heart with gladness when I think about you and when I look at what God has done in you. He says they are his crown of boasting. His crown of boasting. When a general triumphed in battle or when an athlete won an important race, he was awarded a crown. It was his reward. It was his prize for his labors. And Paul says of these Thessalonian Christians, you are my reward. You yourselves, you are all the reward that I need. I don't need anything else. There's nothing else that I could possibly wish for. You are my crown of boasting. You are my glory, then, he says. And that's really the same kind of idea as the crown of boasting. He says, we revel in the fact that you have been transformed by the power and the grace of Almighty God. We revel in the fact that God chose to work through us, through our preaching, through our witness, to bring you to himself. You are our glory. Hope, joy, crown of boasting, and glory. Paul's love explained. He says to these Thessalonians, don't listen to anyone who tells you that I am indifferent to you. Couldn't be further from the truth. This is what you are to me. You are everything to me. You are my hope. You are my joy. You are my crown of boasting. You are my glory. Paul's love 
explained. So we've seen Paul's love questioned, we've seen it defended, we've seen it explained. And then lastly, uh, let's think about Paul's love traced. Paul's love traced. Uh, that is to say, Paul's love traced to its source. Normally when we read this kind of passage, we apply it to human pastors. Paul loved his congregation. And so pastors today should follow Paul's example. And I should say as a pastor of this congregation, of all of you, that you are my hope, my joy, my crown of boasting, my glory. Uh, and all of that is absolutely true and right. Uh, but I don't want us to, to focus on that this evening. I don't want us to focus on that for our communion season. Instead, I want us to work backwards. And I want us to ask the question first, why does Paul love his people like this? Where did he learn that a pastor should love the people under his care with so much devotion? Who is he imitating? Where does this model of pastoral ministry come from? And I hope you know the answer to that question. Paul is imitating the Lord Jesus Christ. Because his love for the Thessalonians, Paul's love for these saints in Thessalonica, is just a pale shadow, isn't it, of Christ's love for the Thessalonians. The Lord Jesus Christ, as Hebrews 13.20 puts it, is the great shepherd of the sheep. He is the great pastor of every believer. And what we are seeing here in this passage is Paul trying by the grace of God to imitate the Lord's own perfect love for his flock. The Lord's love is slandered and questioned, isn't it? The devil does all that he can to slander our pastor, our shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ to us. You've heard the hiss of the serpent's voice, haven't you? Trying to persuade you that he doesn't love you, that he doesn't care about you. That's been his tactic right from the beginning in the Garden of Eden. That's what he said to our first parents. God doesn't really love you. You can't really trust God with your happiness. That's why he doesn't want you to have this lovely, delicious fruit that would make you so wise and would give you so much pleasure and so much joy and happiness. Do you not realize that God is jealous and he's mean and he's stingy? And that's the same slander that he still spreads against the Lord Jesus. Maybe you've heard him say that in recent times. Jesus doesn't care about you. Look at all that you're going through. 
Look at all that you're suffering because of him for his sake. And does he help? Not a bit of it. You're on your own. Look at all that he expects you to give up just because he says so. He's so unreasonable. He's so unfair. He's so harsh. He's so narrow. The Christian life is such a joyless drudgery. Jesus doesn't love you. The devil slanders our pastor to us. And yet what Paul says about his attitude to the Thessalonians is true, isn't it? To an infinitely higher degree of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think of these words in the mouth of Jesus. You are his crown of boasting. You are his reward, his prize for all that he did on the cross. Zechariah 9, 16. The Lord their God will save them on that day as the flock of his people. They will sparkle in his land like jewels in a crown. Isaiah 62, verse 3. You will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You, little ordinary you, little ordinary nobodies like me, we are a crown of boasting of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We are the Lord's glory and the Lord's joy. It must have warmed the Thessalonians' hearts. It must have been a tremendous reassurance for them to hear these words from Paul. He thinks of us as his glory and his joy. Wouldn't you love to be described like that? Wouldn't you love to be somebody's glory, somebody's joy? And yet we are the Lord's glory and the Lord's joy. That's what he says, John 15, 11. Jesus says, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Or Jude 24. Listen to this. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. Yes, we will stand before the Lord with great joy. But He, He will take great joy in us. In us being there with Him. Don't let the devil, don't let anyone else tell you that the Lord Jesus doesn't love you. Don't let Him sow seeds of doubt in your mind. And the Lord's Supper that we'll celebrate together next Lord's Day morning, is a sign and a seal of that love. It's a frequent and regular reminder and a guarantee that the Lord really, truly loves you. Isn't that what Jesus said in John fifteen thirteen? Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And as we sit at his table, and as we see the signs and the seals of his body and blood. 
we are reminded and we are reassured that the Lord truly loves us. So let's pray that this communion season will be a great encouragement to each one of us, a reassurance of the Lord's great love for us, His people, that we are His glory, His hope, His joy, His crown of boasting. Amen. Again, thank you for your love to us in Jesus Christ. We thank you for that supreme demonstration of your love in sending your Son to live and to die and to rise again in our place and for our salvation. We thank you, Lord God, that in him we have every spiritual blessing. We thank you for the wonderful spiritual blessing of knowing him as our shepherd, the one who guides and leads and protects and cares for us. We thank you that these words are true for us of the Lord's relationship to us, that we are his hope and joy and crown of boasting, that we are his glory and his joy. Lord, we pray for any who specially need to be assured of these truths at this time. We pray for any who are discouraged and doubting, for those who are perhaps under a particular satanic attack, uh, being tempted to doubt the Lord's love for them. We pray that these words will ring in their ears and in their hearts, and that we would be encouraged and strengthened in our walk with the Lord. We pray, Father, that in these coming days we will uh, intentionally, deliberately, and carefully be preparing for the Lord's Supper next Lord's Day. We pray that as we sit and eat and drink together in your presence at your table, that we will be strengthened in our faith and in our love for you. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.